so good evening and welcome to the Three Moves Ahead panel on interface design worth a thousand words. Uh, and I want to welcome you to what is surely the wonkiest possible subject uh, you could have chosen for the uh, 7.30 talk at PAX. So congratulations, you are all like uber nerds to the point where it's like not even cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we're going to skip introductions because uh, I'm just a little bit concerned about time because we all got a lot of uh, demonstrations to go through. So uh, each panelist is going to introduce himself as he sort of uh, highlights some examples of good and disastrous uh, interface design and information design in games. Uh, so we'll start off with uh, my friend and the CEO of Ironwall Games, Rob Davia. Hello. Just getting my notes up. Uh, hello, I am anchoring the board game portion of this. We're going to start out kind of old school with some cardboard and some plastic and then move through technology as we go to the right. Um, the idea of interface design for board games or tabletop games in general is kind of interesting. I've been in the industry for almost 15 years now as a designer. I spent most of that time at Hasbro, which is Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley, and then left uh, just about six months ago to kind of do my own thing, doing uh, game consulting and publishing some of my own designs, or will be publishing. It takes a little while to design them. Uh, so what I want to talk about today is what exactly interface design is for a board game. There's obviously no screens, there's no hotkeys, there's no buttons that you're pushing or buttons that you're mashing. But underneath all that, it remains the same, which is how does a player interact with the vision of the designer? The designer comes up with a series of systems and wants you to have a great time with them. Um, and for the sake of this example, we're going to assume the impossible, which is that the game came with the perfect rule book that explained everything to you exactly when you needed it in language that was crystal clear <laughs> and examples that were brilliant. Um, the, <laughs> This does not exist. It will never exist. It's my personal grail quest to create a rule book that people walk up and, and say was their favorite part of the game. <laughs> I will be happy to get away with something that doesn't require me to be on the internet. And, no, I'm sorry. I actually meant, yeah, no, that's after you draw cards. Sorry, that was a little unclear there. Um, so this isn't going to be a discussion of rules and how difficult it is to learn to game, but let's assume you're sitting down to play a game. You've got pieces, you've got parts, you've got physical space, you've got actual true 3D that you're working around, and you have to kind of interact with this physical space, and you want it to kind of be seamless. You want it to go away so that you're playing the game and you're not struggling with the game. And what I put together is, I put together the seven deadly sins of interactive de or interface design for board games, but we're running tight, so I think I have six. Um, <laughs> So the seventh really one deadly. is going to be an expansion pack that I'm going to release next year. <laughs> kind of downloadable content. Um, so the first thing that I want to talk about, and let's see if I keep my phone, is, is the, um, oh, the, the sin of color. And you can see on the corner, I put my dumb fault when it's a game that I worked on because I figure if I'm going to throw stones, I'm going to start with myself. This is a game I did about 12 years ago called History of the World. It was actually a redo. It was a game that came out in the 90s, and I got to redo it with uh, Hasbro's budget, which was great. So it contains thousands and thousands of plastic miniatures and plays up to six players and plays best with six players. I always play green, so I get mad when I can't play green, so I thought it was in my best interest to put two different shades of green <laughs> in the game. Um, which is just to say that color matters a lot and people make assumptions about color. There are a lot of people who are colorblind, um, so there's many different types of software now you can use to see how your color is going to look to the colorblind. But people just sort of make, you, you put down a game and you get different pieces and you see colors, people say, I'm going to be red. And there's another game by Reiner Knizia called Tigris and Euphrates where 
everyone, there's, there's lions, uh, I forget, bulls, lions and tigers and bears. Like there's different symbols on the pieces and they're different colors. And rather than everyone plays red and you get like different, like the lion lets you attack or something, everyone plays an animal and then the color tells you what you do with that. So it's completely backwards. And there's nothing inherently wrong with it other than that's just one thing that a person has to learn now that they didn't have to learn if you had done it the other way. Uh, the next thing is the sin of function, also my dumb fault. Um, game called Cosmic Encounter, it's been through many reprints. I got a, a work on it with a friend of mine back about 13 years ago, and we had this awesome looking ships that you'd line up and you'd put in this other ship to attack and they would key in, and they would nestle in, and after you spent 30 minutes trying to do that once, you never use them again, so which is, you know, the piece should stand up. The piece should not fall over like the uh, Nazgul and the War of the Rings game that you have to take pennies to. Like, it's these little simple things, like, you should know which end is up in, in a game design piece, and like, we kind of failed that here. Um, just from the fact that we fell in love with how it looks, and we have to remember that game components are, are functional things. Uh, there's the sin of detail. It's a game called Steam. I don't know if it... Uh, no, sorry. It is Steam? Age of Steam. Um, Brass. Brass, that's what it is. Thank you. Um, I played a couple times. I've enjoyed it. It's a great game design. And in order to get true 19th century canal development authenticity for the Liverpool area, <laughs> there is an extensive set of rules around right down in the corner, Birkenhead. There's like, it's right across from Liverpool down there. I cannot tell you what those rules are. And we just decided that that place had been nuked by like zombies. <laughs> and we just ignored it, which is to say, Especially in board games, a game is not a simulation, not these days. A game is a, you know, an abstraction with a lot of detail. And if you get too caught up in your detail when you're designing your interface, people are going to struggle with the details and they'll lose sight of the overall vision you want them to get. Um, there's the sin of size. This is War of the Ring. Most of the battles take places in very noticeable key areas. Minas Tirith is going to get a lot of fights. These sort of things. These are the smallest spaces on the board to be authentic to Tolkien's map. And there are giant spaces way off where the dwarves live that you could, like, unroll a sleeping bag and live on the board in that part. <laughs> and you never have any pieces there. So it's like, you know, you want to make sure that your pieces work in the thing. You know, they, not only do they not fall over, but that they work in the space. And this board is three feet by two feet. And there's probably, you know, eight key spaces are small. I think in the re, uh, redone version of this, they've made them bigger. There's the, the sin of what I'm sort of abbreviating as iconism. This is Race for the Galaxy, and it has actually a very, very smart iconographic system of what each of these different symbols mean, that once I got it, it was like eureka moment, and then it became very easy. But again, if you're trying to get someone to learn your game at the beginning, having to learn a mathematical abstract language <laughs> is a really tough thing to ask them to jump through. Very good game, though. Um, and then the last thing is the, the sin of cleverness. We all fall in love with our own designs. We all fall in love with a part of a design that we think is the best thing. This is very clear. It was a kid's game. It was the game of life where you get to be a Jedi and you could go to the dark side. And it was based on the game of life and work with Hasbro. And that spinner in the middle, I worked so hard to make it look like it was levitating, like three inches above the board, because that's what it was going to be in episode two. And I made the engineers go back and forth and back and forth. So, and then two things happened. Well, three things happened. One, it looked like it was levitating. Two, the pieces went underneath it. And three, the spinner didn't work. Because I spent so much time with my own cleverness of making sure that I had some very, very minor thing that no one cared about that I forgot. At the end of the day, and I think something we'll all talk about here is you want people to enjoy your game, not enjoy how clever you thought you were with the game. 
Um, and so these are just a real top line. If you have any questions, we're going to be taking questions at the end about anything sort of covered here. Uh, but I don't want to take up too much time, so I'm going to hand it down. So I'm Eric Lee Smith, the CEO of Shenandoah Studio. And we're going to talk about board games to iOS games. So this is Dominant Species, a very successful board game by GMT. And here's the iPad version. Not bad, right? That's how big that is. Okay? You're talking giant pieces, <laughs> which is cool. Here's the iPad version. <laughs> Let's zoom in. Okay? There's no chance that you can actually read this at play, at play distance. No chance at all. What's the moral of the story? You can't just photocopy the board game. Okay? Okay, this is Alien Frontiers, great game. This is the iPad version. Here's a computer version in Polish. And here is the board game, and that's the relative size of the iPad to that with no scaling of the fonts or anything else. Okay, and it's, it's a big game. Moral of story? You can't just photocopy the board. Next. Okay. This is <clears throat> Phantom Leader. Now this, this I'm sort of leading, the, leading you along here. These are actually identical. I believe the designer actually used the Photoshop file from the board game to make the computer game. That's the iPad on the right. But it gets worse. So... That, little, that piece I just showed you is in the top left, and these are the other board game components. So you have a, the, 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 the board in the bottom right is actually the play field where you execute combat, and you have the, the cards, which are vital to this game. That's your actual planes, and you're, you're flying the planes. So the planes look great. The information design's fantastic in the board game. iPad? Oh, exactly the same, but now it's one-tenth the size uh, and you have no chance of actually being able to read this if you have glasses like I do. Moral? You can't just <laughs> photocopy the board game. Okay, so what should you actually do? Use a board game as a point of departure. What I mean by that is it has the rules, the content, it's giving you ideas. But you've got to transform it into the appropriate user interface for the platform you're working on. It's only a point of departure. Also, if you're, using, if you're doing it on the iPad especially, but other small form factors, you need to show only the elements that really matter all the time. The other ones you have to hide and show on demand. Also, good art direction really helps. And use a good font. I'm not kidding about the font. Font really matters. Learn about fonts. So what should you do? Here's something like this. This is my game. This is our game from the Shenandoah studio. This is Battle of the Bulge. And this is what a, actually an American victory looks like about uh, December 25th and Patton has counterattacked and liberated Bastogne. And, and that's a playing space. And that's an iPad. And the only com controls you see here are the ones that are absolutely required. So if you click the menu control, it pops up the other menus that you need. 
when you do an action, a pop-up you know, um, screens pop on top of the, of the uh, page to show you con in context what you can do, and the, and the options are completely obvious. This is the kind of technique you need to use. So let's go back to this. So I'm going to drill down now. So we've opened up the full menu. Now if you click the first link there, it shows the daily briefing. Again, if you notice the font here, our art director chose literally typewriter. You can read, read this with the iPad on your knee with no problem. Also, it looks like it was made in 1943, um, which is part of the, or 44, which is what the bulge, when the bulge happened. And again, you can go through the different buttons there. Back to the main screen, go down to the next one. Here's the calendar. Big, bold, you can read it. And if you want to exit the game, you click, you go back to the main menu, and you're done. So this is the way the game starts also. And again, you have very few choices, very clear. So it's not as easy as just copying the board game and literally Xeroxing the content and sticking it in the iPad. It's far different than that. Thank you. Huzzah. All right, can you guys hear me? Yeah. All right. Hey, everybody, my name is Nels Anderson. Oh, uh, yeah, there we go, cool. Um, so I'm kind of the black sheep of this panel because I make, at least to date, have made stealth games. Um, specifically, I was the lead designer of a game called Mark of the Ninja. Um, but as I, hey, well, that's really cool, thanks. I figured you guys would be all like strategy game and board game people, but you have diverse interests, and I approve. And you're probably like that game because, as I mentioned when I was on the podcast with Rob and Troy, were you on that one? Yes. That I think stealth games, as far as like games with like a single character, are the closest to strategy games because they're all about intentional play and situational awareness, which is, of course, exactly what a good strategy game is about, right? And so in stealth games specifically, kind of the fundamental question, like the, the, the mechanics you need to understand that everything else arises out of is... How does the player know they're hidden? And of course, that is an interface problem. Um, of course, it's also a systems mechanics problem, but it's primarily a interface problem. So one, there, there's kind of one fundamental distinction when it comes to concealment, that either concealment exists is analog or binary. So you could have some gradient of concealment-ness where you're either like totally visible, totally concealed, or like kind of somewhere in the middle, and that's obviously something that f fell most originally out of, out of Thief from Looking Glass, which is still one of my favorite games ever. Um, and presentationally, it just has this light gem that kind of sits down at the bottom of the screen, right, which varies from white to black, and uh, you want to make sure it's black as much as possible. Um, and of course, that was adopted by Splinter Cell and a bunch of other games along the road. But what some, an interesting change, and I say interesting, I'm not saying good or bad necessarily, but an interesting change that was made in the most recent Spinner Cell that was released was they changed the stealth model from being something that was analog. Actually, I think maybe they did this in that fourth one that nobody liked. Um, but definitely in Conviction, there was basically only two states of concealment, right? Either you were completely obscured or you're completely visible. If you were obscured, the screen went kind of black and white, which made the game not look super great and kind of made other important elements disappear. Um, and if you were concealed, the game looked like normal. Um, so it's probably not how I would do that, because what we did in Mark and the Ninja was we put the light darkness indicator onto the player character itself, because what's the thing you're looking at most of the time when you're playing a character-based action-adventure game? You're looking at your character. So in Mark and the Ninja, whenever you're concealed, uh, the character's appearance completely changes. It becomes black with a white outline and just a couple of red highlights. Um, but when you're lit, you can see the, color, the character's skin tone, the different colors on his uniform, outfit, ninja, 
close, whatever. Um, and so the point being is like the thing you're looking at should be communicating the fundamental piece of information. That fundamental piece of information is am I concealed or not? Um, there's uh, the other important, so that's, that's kind of the player awareness side of things. And then a lot of other games present uh, this information as well or exclusively through NPC awareness, right? So, you know, that's often comes through like barks and animation and stuff like that. But it could very well also include some kind of UI element, uh, specifically the vision cone that if you've ever played a stealth game, you're probably familiar with. So in Ninja, what we did, we actually made the enemy's vision cones and their light sources basically the same. So under the hood, um, yeah, I, I actually probably should have taken a better screenshot that has a bunch of debug stuff in it. But basically, the, under the hood, this guy has some internal notion of what his eyes can see. But it's exactly the same size as his flashlight. So there isn't like two different things that the player needs to understand. It's like, am I illuminated? And can he see me? It's just, am I in the light that's sticking out of the end of his gun? Cool, he's going to see me and shoot me. Uh, if not, I'm safe. Um, another way to do this, and I think this is probably better suited toward first-person games, is putting UI indicators on the characters themselves. So, the NPCs. Um, so, if you've ever played Assassin's Creed, you know those, like, chevrons that appear above guys' heads and fill up. That's one way to do it. Um, what Dishonored did, and I think this was a very clever decision, is they had, like, these three series of lightning bolts that, that fill up as people become more aware of you. But the interesting decision they made, and I think it was definitely the right one, is that that UI element shows even when the characters themselves are concealed by level geometry. So what happens when you are about to be detected by an enemy? You need to know where they are, right? And so when this, like, about-to-be-seen thing occurs, you know, like, oh, are they behind that wall? How can I break my line of sight with them so they don't actually confirm and see me? Um, yeah, ah, shows through walls. That's the next slide. Um, Yes, and that's basically it. So my point wasn't, was less about this is good, bad, whatever. It's just this is a thing that, while it seems like, oh, that's just part of a gameplay system, it's actually like a fundamental interface decision that affects just about everything else you're going to do in the game, from the level design to the mechanical systems to the other abilities. So be more aware of that, you smart people, as you play these games. This is Rob, are you next? Sweet. Thank you. Uh, so something I wanted to talk a little bit about today is, uh, you know, data versus information. Uh, once upon a time, I had a, a you know teacher in college who was the former uh, head of the East Asian desk at the CIA. And uh, one of the things he talked about a lot was the fact that, you know, like his job was just taking reams and reams of, of data and transforming that to information that policymakers would react to. Uh, because... Uh, you know, the world's full of just tons of data points, and it doesn't become information until it's been put into some sort of, like, coherent framework that someone can actually use to make some sort of decision. And I think in strategy games in particular, almost, like, you know, the interface is in some ways your intelligence agency. Your interface has to be the guy bringing you your morning briefing and telling you what the hell is going on. So the first example I, I wanted to start with, uh, and, and I was leery of doing this because uh, SimCity, I'm, I'm sure, SimCity is not a perfect game. It may surprise you to hear. Uh, <laughs> it's a little controversial, but one of the things it does really extraordinarily well, uh, at least at the city level, is give you information. Uh, and so here... Uh, here we've got one of these screens you're going to refer to the most in SimCity, uh, which is the density screen. 
and it gives you a legend right up there in the corner showing what the colors mean. And uh, then you've got these magnitude uh, bars. It's, very, this, it's got this wonderful infographic design, these bars that increase in magnitude that you know, subtly fill up that tell you basically when, the, when a building's about to pop, when it's about to upgrade in density. And that's really kind of the heart of SimCity. Uh, and other systems as well, uh, there are other you know, parts of this, this interface that... Um, isolate other variables, like you can look at education buildings, and suddenly the city just goes like gray. It goes grayscale. And the only thing that's in color uh, is students traveling to school, school buses, uh, schools. So it just completely isolates uh, that problem space for you, and then you can sort of make decisions about how you want to handle that uh, situation in isolation. And I think it's telling, actually, that the SimCity interface kind of falls the hell apart when it goes to the region level. Because uh, the region level is kind of where that game's problems really come to the fore. It's not really well integrated. It's a great, it's, it's a really cool, interesting uh, city managing game. You go to that region level, though, and suddenly things break, uh, break apart. And coincidentally, it doesn't seem to know how to tell you useful information about what's going on at the region level. Um, and that relates to something else, which is sometimes I think uh, interface can kind of give you a hint at shortcomings in uh, a game's design, things that maybe haven't been thought out too well. This is a screenshot, uh, a blow-up of a screenshot from a game called March of the Eagles, uh, which is a paradox strategy game uh, about the Napoleonic Wars. Paradox make a lot of really great games. They tend to be grand strategy games. March of the Eagles, and it's a blast in multiplayer, by the way, and it's not very expensive. I highly recommend it if you've got a few friends who just want to blow a few nights uh, you know, fighting as France, England, Prussia against one another. But one of the things it's trying to be is a bit more of a war game, uh, where what type of troops you deploy, what's in the army composition, who's your general. That stuff, that stuff, is, supposed to ma that stuff is supposed to matter uh, in this game even though it's still using kind of a grand strategy engine. And this is the unit recruitment uh, menu. And this is me trying to decide what kind of infantry I want to build. And right there on the left-hand side, we've got iconography that gives you uh, a half dozen different varieties of red coat. I have no idea what any of those are. It doesn't, it doesn't actually tell me anything. Then you've got this, these, these rows, of, these columns of stats. And at the top, you can sort of sort these columns like a spreadsheet and sort it by smiley face. Um, and smiley face, as it turns out, is a measure of units badassery, uh, which, um, as we all know, the smiley face is, in fact, the hardest of the hardcore symbols. Um, and so... The other thing, though, is look at, look at the sort of numbers this is kicking out. 1.21, 4.56. I don't know what that means. And <laughs> this is all going to be mixed and matched and put into a blender, and it's going to kick out some sort of battle result. But just looking at the numbers and variables for these units, I have no idea what this is going to translate to. There's, it's tons of data, but it doesn't answer this really crucial question, which is, what the hell does any of this stuff do? What's this going to mean for me when I send these guys into battle? This doesn't tell you. The other thing is this, though. The spreadsheet-style design that's going on here, um, the spreadsheet's a really dangerous temptation, I think, in strategy gaming, uh, because it, spreadsheets are great for collating information, 
but they also give you the illusion of being able to manage it. Because uh, you can always sort it, and if you built the spreadsheet, it makes perfect sense. You just you know, click, and then you're, you've isolated the variable you care about. But if you're coming to it sort of cold, it's just a lot of numbers that you can sort in all these different arbitrary ways, but God help you if you actually try to you know, do something useful with them. Uh, you could always read the manual, I guess, but <laughs> come on. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things that uh, interface really should do is call attention to trouble areas. And then once it's called, directed your attention there, it should be really easy for you to identify what's going on. Uh, so here we've got a shot from uh, the drive on Stalingrad in uh, Unity of Command, uh, which is an amazing war game, uh, entry-level war game. It's, it's fantastic. Um, so here we've got the, I, I'm playing the Germans here. Here we've got the Germans driving down toward uh, Stalingrad. And this is a game that's basically all about supply. And if you look at the, uh, the eastern part of the German line, you see some units with exclamation points by them. And that's an indication they have run out of supply. They've outrun their supply lines. So right there, we've, we've got a problem. After those guys have run out of supplies, they've got a very short window to fuel back up, or else all those panzers are just lawn ornaments, and they're going to get killed. So what the hell do I do about this? What's, what's happening to these guys? Why are they out of supply? Well, then you just click. The interface calls your attention to it. Then you just click on the fuel barrel uh, on the interface. And that doesn't show up here, but there's a fuel barrel. You click on it to show supply mode. All the units are gone. And now we just look at the raw supply data for how supply flows across the map. And uh, what, th what this does now is it removes all the distraction. Now you're just staring at the problem. And you can keep toggling between it, you know, like here are the units, you know, and there they go, and here's the supply map. And you can sort of study the flow of supply here and then drop your plan from that and figure out how you're going to change your line of attack so that your units are able to fuel back up on the next turn. And uh, so that's, I mean, that's a simple example, but it's also like interface design, information design, kind of at its most elegant. You know, it flags it for you, says, hey, you need to pay attention to this. And then it tells you right away, Here's what's going wrong. Here's how you can fix it. I'm Troy Goodfellow. I'm the founder of Three Moves Ahead and co-owner with Rob Zachney. Uh, I also do public relations, including for a wonderful Napoleonic war game called March of the Eagles, which I encourage you to all buy so you get better at Excel. Um, it's, and it is really outstanding multiplayer. A couple of quick stories before I show my first slide. As I was preparing this presentation and thinking of games I would take screens of, uh, as always, I was on chat with my best friend. Um, she's a heavy gamer, and she plays console stuff and music games and all these colorful, really colorful games. And I said, wow, I play some really ugly games, don't I? <laughs> you know, she's a sweetheart. She's very smart. With her great depth of wisdom, she says, yeah, no shit. Um, <laughs> and that's, the second uh, bit is when we were planning this panel, um, I was originally, I said, look, you know, last year, first time we did this, I just went off on a rant. Uh, so this year, why don't I moderate? And uh, Rob, you can just have the floor, and Julian can be here, and I'll just sit back and relax. And he said, no, I want you to go off on Game X. The problem is Game X was published by a client uh, of ours. Well, three weeks ago, that client transferred the rights to somebody else, so, <laughs> 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 what?
what I want to talk about is one of the big problems in hardcore serious strategy games, and this is something that Rob and I both love. We both love these games full of meat, is there's a difference between... Is, the issue is often people look at them and say they're complicated, they're hard, and blame it on UI, and it really isn't. It's about how you can have a lot of, has a lot of information, but is well presented. This is Pride of Nations. This is from a company called Ajod. Uh, they are wonderful people, and it's a really, really good game, um, if you can get into it. It's full of depth, full of complexity. I think it has one of the best models of crisis management in the 19th century ever done. If you're interested in 19th century crisis management, I highly recommend it. <laughs> but in many ways, it is also the perfect computer game equivalent of uh, Rob's sins. This is the interface Hitler, I guess you would call it, <laughs> even though, because it has so many sins going that on escalated. in it, even though it is actually quite a good game. This is the economic map. Each of those regions, because both industry or farm, three or four different crops or goods or mines, and this is just one map mode. There are probably six major map modes and 20 minor <laughs> map modes. I'll show you on another screen where you can find all the minor map modes. Uh, but So you click on the economic menu and you have to click through a whole bunch of buttons to get to it, but once you find them, or you press a function key, which is in nine-point font, tells you which function key to press at the very top, um, you never... So many people are terrified of this game. Now, a lot of friends of mine don't like manuals and because they're about digital stuff, but this is a game that needs a manual and a tutor. <laughs> this is another sin. Uh, we're going to get into this. is a diplomatic... Who can tell me what the problem is with this diplomatic offer menu? Tiny, one thing. But also, I have really bad... Keep on, I'm really... Pardon? On youth space. Well, remember, also, I also suck at taking screenshots. Uh, the, which of those red things is yes? <laughs> yeah, you should have different colors, right? And this, is, this isn't just sin of... Oh, and that little thing in the very corner there, that's half of the menu, of the map menus. There's the rest. This is the colonization mode. It has all the different types of colonization there at the bottom, colonial actions. Well, you probably can't tell because of my screenshot, screenshot suckery is the first four of those to the left are guys with pith helmets and very small font telling you what these pith helmet guys are doing. Is this an anthropological expedition? Is this a geographic expedition? <laughs> is this just random exploration? This is a problem uh, because, as uh, we've said a lot uh, in this sh uh, panel so far, it's kind of the interface reflects the muddy design underneath. You do not need four different types of pith helmet dudes <laughs> out doing stuff with different variables. Oh, the next ones, there are two, three different things you can do with boats and four things you can do with guys in red coats that involve treating with the natives. You do not need all of these. And this is in the colonization mode. Um, this is a game that has such a murky design. It's a good game, but the design is confused, so the interface is confused. This is the science menu, and I'm not going to go through this except say, I still don't really understand the science, <laughs> except I click buttons and I learn things. Um, I guess here I was discovering 
gold bars, so <laughs> this is the Ron Paul menu, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but then we get to War in the East. Now, Rob talked about Unity of Command, which I think is probably my favorite uh, game about Operation Barbarossa. Uh, if you can have a favorite game about Operation Barbarossa, Jesus that's going to be it. Uh, but War in the East is, I mean, the irony is both of these games, War in the East and Pride of Nations, are now both managed by the same company. That's Matrix Games. It's a company known for hardcore war games. War in the East is a $70, $80 game. Um, it is targeting a niche audience, and it is absolutely freaking brilliant. Uh, guts into geography and weather in a really detailed way, but it scares people. It terrifies them because it looks like these war games people hated and were afraid of uh, through the 80s and 90s, which led to people pretty much giving up on war games. That and people discovered the Xbox. Um, and just look at this. I mean, Eric talked about font, and this is a very simple, clear font. But you look at the scenario selection menu, you don't think, wow, this is going to be fun. <laughs> but you look at this, and it's, it looks scary, right? You, you th but... You know what? There are very few buttons up there. You, actually, you can take actions and do them and understand them without touching a lot of those buttons. Now, you might think that's a bad idea because it means those buttons aren't important. No, those buttons are important for power users. Those buttons are important if you really want to excel at the game. But you can play it with mostly just moving things around. And it's clear what the icons mean. They're very traditional. Strength and movement power. You see the operation of the zones of control. You can tell what a bomb is up there, where the airplanes are. War in the East's big problem, and this is a problem with a lot of strategy games. I think Civilization is one of the only games that really does this well. And um, I'm sorry John Fraser couldn't be here just to talk about how awesome he was uh, making his <laughs> Civ V interface, which I think is part of the best strategy game interface ever made, Civilization V. Uh, but John's spending his Kickstarter millions uh, now on new cars and fur coats. Uh, we have... <laughs> But what War in the East should do, and what Civilization does well, well get back to this, is it should make things available to you as you need them. It should have a way of teaching you the game, have advanced modes. Who remembers Rise of Nations? Rise of Nations, great real-time strategy game, one of the best ever made, coming on Steam shortly. Woohoo! We hope. We hope. Um, it's been leaked. But it had an advanced menu and a simplified menu. You could play the game without you know, having all of the options, but you could turn on, on stuff, turn off stuff. War games should do that. More games should do that. Um, I really like more on the East interface, but it could be better. Even a good interface is good. It can be better. Look at this. This is why, one reason, ignore the numbers. This is one of, the, one of its few sins. Those numbers are irrelevant. It really don't, doesn't matter how many riflemen get killed in that Waffen SS division. Hopefully it's all of them. Um, but you also... You see where the airstrikes are coming from. And little lines are drawn, letting you know you didn't have, you didn't have to command that airstrike. The game called that stuff in, because it says, oh, this attack's going to need some air power, it'll come in. Now, you can do that stuff yourself, you can direct it, you can micromanage it, the game tells you where it's coming. Evolving interface would be better, and I want to say the best evolving interface ever made is Rob Davio's Risk Legacy. Who's played Risk Legacy? Thank you. What makes Risk Legacy brilliant is it introduces new rules as you go, as you need them. Even the rule book, which is pretty damn good, you only have to read like the first couple of pages, and the rest of the pages don't count for a while until you unlock new stuff and new power. Oh, now you can read 
further on because you opened envelope death. Um, I think more I think more computer games can learn from evolving interfaces like that and from giving you the option to simple and complicated. Pride of Nations, all complicated, all data, all mess, great crisis management, uh, we're in the East, great interface, great display of information, should have better ways of teaching it. All right, I think we can take some questions. So uh, every time I play a war game, I mean, especially uh, Battle of the Bulge, it's so abstracted from, I can't think of what that would look like in real life anymore. Um, I think think we've moved past that. Is there a way to translate the simplified uh, into into something that you can visualize? The the, uh, the question here is one of scale. So the pieces in the game represent uh, divisions which are between 10 and 15,000 people. Um, so we've chosen to show it abstractly. You lose, you lose pips, um, and you know you, there are other styles of doing um, close-in battle, and but we've chosen to um, to use this approach because it speeds play, and it it, it avoids the um, the repetitious. It came up earlier. The repetitious showing of excessive detail, which is cool the first few times, but after that it gets really old. So. We actually have invested in a, an approach that uh, rewards long-term play. So you can play our game for a long term without getting bored with seeing the combat preview and the combat resolution. Um, we had a longer, we had slightly longer versions, and we we, we experimented. So it's very intentional, um, and there are other ways to do it. And in fact, you could have, for example, special rules like if you're fighting in a special city, you could have a more detailed result. Uh, we didn't really investigate that, but that would be an approach. I wouldn't recommend in our kind of game to go in and show ex- a lot of detail for every single uh, engagement because it'll just get boring. So. so in one of your podcasts with Rob Davio, um, A Million Little Plastic Pieces, you talked about how playing board games with in-context pieces is really great and enjoyable and enhances the experience. But do you think the rules are different for video games? Like here... It's very realistic to the time period and the sort of game, but it scares people off. And Civ Five, I wouldn't say the interface matches any of the specific ages really well, but it's really clear and easy to understand. Um, I'll start with this, and then Rob can finish up. Um, I guess it really does depend on the level of the game you want to have. I mean, this is a lot of pieces, and it will scare a lot of people off. I'm not saying everyone should rush out and play War in the East unless you're really interested in World War II. It does have a lot of pieces moving, and it is terrifying. Um, you know, it also has a fidelity to it, it has a purity to it, it has a strength, it has, it has the things that you won't get on an iPad game. Um, what Eric was getting at, issues of, I mean, platform stuff is very important. You can't make, you can't do War in the East on an iPad. Uh, you can't do War in the East on a table. But you can. People have done it, and it's, they're even more terrifying, because you've got to use tweezers. Um, <laughs> seriously, uh, but it, there, there, but there is a limit of human uh, understanding, and where you get too many details and too many pieces, which is why this has so many smaller scenarios, and you can work your way up to the whole thing. Um, Rob, yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing is in the tabletop space, you have so many fewer pieces of information to c- convey that big picture that each one means more. 
uh, in a digital space, you've got sound and, and movement and multiple screens. And, you know, I get jealous as a tabletop designer. People are like, oh, you click on this and this disappears and we show you what you want. I'm like, you're going to sweep your table of pieces and set up a new game to zoom in. Um, so what matters is, you know, each piece, even if it's just a small half a cent piece of plastic, it has to convey what that unit is just sitting there statically. So making it thematic, making it functional, it just has much more importance. If you think about it, a board game is almost like a sketch or an impressionistic painting. It conveys a picture that the rest of your brain fills in. And so that's why I always feel personally that a good, strong attachment of theme to the piece is certainly color. You know, don't make the gold green. You know, like, that. like it's a green cube, it's money, it's gold. You know, it was like, you know like all these little things add up to the picture that you're trying to get in your head, just like when you read a book as opposed to watch a movie. Uh, are there any games and other genres that any of you would say have kind of uh, been made the pinnacle of UI, like they're the best in that genre above any of the others? I really like Dragon Age's uh, interface. Uh, and I think the, I think Bioware is really good at the RPG interface stuff. Uh, I think they've improved. And they've improved since they've improved since Baldur's Gate. I'll tell you that. Uh, but I really I liked I like Dragon Ages um, um, on the Xbox. I like how Mass Effects work. I haven't played it on the PC. It kind of betrayed my mistress there, the PC. Um, but uh, in other genres, I I can tell you what. Uh, but I what games suck. Uh, Walking Dead. Walking Dead's got a great interface. Uh, it tells you what you need to do. Uh, it's the cook time events. Are, it tells you when you need to do it and how quickly you need to do it. And the cues are really great. So I think Walking Dead is a recent game that I think is a brilliant interface inside of strategy. Uh, if, I don't know how, how many of you guys have stood in line to play it, but it's really good. Um, Transistor, Supergiant's new game, has an awesome like turn-based planning bit to it. And it already, I'm sure they're even going to make it better, but it already is like good and crunchy and smart, but it just gives you everything you need. Oh, it's really good. Wait in line to play it. What? Yes, and there's like a big old recharge bar. Actually, one thing that Dishonored does that's awesome is there's this little musical tone every time you're, like whenever you use an ability, it uses a bit of mana. But if you don't use another ability for a little bit of time, it fills back up and they have this like perfect musical tone that plays like as your mana bar is filling up. And every time, like you don't even need to look at that mana bar ever because you just hear the little whoop. And then you're like, all right, I'm good. I can blink again. I'm going to say something a little off uh, gaming. If you really want to learn about information design, what you need to look at is financial services applications. And I highly recommend, uh, I'm very serious about this. I highly recommend you look at E-Trade's app on the iPad. It is off the charts great. I just can't, I can't stress it enough. The research application that they have, the online trading, the information design, the font choice, it's absolutely one of the finest pieces of work I've ever seen. And it's not, and it's not just E-Trade, there are others. Fidelity's uh, app, too, is off the charts great. So there are other places that do great information design besides games. You know, something I find uh, really interesting, I'm, I'm two minds about um, EA sports games, particularly the, uh, the football games, uh, NCAA and Madden. Uh, because on the one hand, what I find really interesting is in some ways they're this ultimate triumph of interface design and information design 
because they've changed how we watch and present football, right? Like, how many television innovations in the past, you know, uh, broadcast innovations in the past, like, 15 years of uh, football have really kind of had their start in trying to sort of, like, reflect now an experience uh, that you see in video games. Like, I don't think they started doing the uh, wire cam, you know, which is over the quarterback's uh, shoulder uh, behind the quarterback. I don't think they started doing that until after it started appearing in games. And so you have this weird, um, this weird relationship where, like, uh, EA Sports games start by trying to, as carefully as they can, recreate the broadcast experience, and then they start changing the broadcast experience. I, I do find the, the reason I'm ambivalent about them, though, is that their interface, uh, you know, their design consistency year on year is so good. Uh, but the 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 problem then is it becomes like Christmas tree, and every generation it gets a little more confusing, a little more baroque. Like uh, people are going back and looking at uh, what was it? NHL '94 recently uh, celebrated its anniversary. Beloved hockey game. I think if you took someone who was like loved the NHL and loved hockey games and loved NHL '94 and were like, all right, well here's NHL '13. They're completely at sea. It, it doesn't. It doesn't help because at this point, you you no longer know what you're looking at because the interface is basically designed with pre, assuming previous literacy. So I know there was a mention of not talking about instruction books, but after yeah. I've played a lot of board games, I'm curious what is the worst set of board game instructions you've come across? I tried to learn Agricola, and that was like horrible. Arkham Damn. Horror. Okay. I have played that. It we uh, my a bunch of my friends. Even though the game's uh, it, it's fun to play, but it's not a great game. But we played it. I think thirteen times before we got through an entire game without realizing we were playing some part of the rules wrong. Partially because there's a lot, but also because that rule book is just text and garbage, and the stuff is. Ne- yeah, there, there can be and have been whole panels on on how to write a rule book, and the, one of the big problems with board game. Um, there's a lot of problems with board game rule books. Um, but one of the things is that they really serve two main functions. The first one is that you, when you first pick it up and read it, you're trying to absorb this entire flowchart into your head of what the game is. Okay, this, and then this, and then this. Right? It's just a series of if-then. So you want the thing to be as clear and clean and brief as possible. And you want to get bogged down in detail because everyone's looking at you and you, they want to start playing. Um, little tip, actually. Read the rule book before people show up at your house to play. Um, <laughs> But then when you're playing the game and you get in the middle and you get stuck and you go, wait, I need a very specific piece of detailed information. Now the rulebook has gone from this lighthearted get into it quickly to a reference manual. And these both live in the same place. So either you're being too dense when you're trying to learn it or you're being too much of an overview when you're trying to use it as a reference material. There's a whole sin of things that happen out of that. I mean, you, you, people put rules in the examples as opposed to the example clarifying things. My big thing that I think would help rule books is to actually stop having them written and then art directed, but have them art directed and then written around them and turn them on their head, almost like you would design a comic book, which is give me the visual information first, you know, show me what I'm looking at on the table, and then give me just enough words to clarify these drawings. But it would sort of take a radical change and a lot of money for someone to kind of do that and fumble through the early stages of how to do it, you know, poorly until it got done right. In the um, board gaming area, I've always been an admirer of Columbia Games uh, out of Canada that does board war games that have very short rule books, not one wasted word, examples, and um, very clear writing and short. And to, me, to my mind, they're one of the best rule book writers out there. 
Uh, yeah, I was, I was wondering about, like, you were talking about translating a user interface to the iPad. So I imagine there's also difficulties translating it to then a phone because you have a lot of phone games now. Um, and so you need a user interface for that. And I was wondering if people use the, uh, the like, vibration as kind of a tactile feedback you know, to convey some information the way uh, you were talking about the audio thing for the mana. Um, so I don't know if, if people do that. Like, uh, I don't have a smartphone. <laughs> it's early yet, and people are still experimenting with ways to communicate information. I think vibration is a good idea for many things, for combat resolution and many other areas. I, I'm not an expert on iPhone game design. We haven't tackled it yet. We're going to. Um, the critical thing on iPhone is that it's real estate. It's a real estate and zooming question. So you have to direct the user to the to the appropriate part of the board without them having to having to do it um, manually. Um, so you have to you have to kind of control what they see, and zooming and scrolling and all that is is absolutely vital on an iPhone. It's just a, a real estate question, and that's just, that's the truth with any um, small fact, form factor device such as a you know it doesn't have to be an iPhone. It could be a Samsung phone. It doesn't matter. Uh, I think the art direction issues when you, the smaller you get, the harder it is. It's really, the, it's really the case. I mean, our, my guys are kind of dreading looking at it because we have our interface is fairly simple, and I'm not that worried about it. But they're they're dreading it a little bit. Uh, so my question is more about uh, testing. So you know, obviously with a lot of games, you do beta tests and whatnot to see how well the game uh, plays and is it fun. Uh, but you know, thinking about user interface design, do you guys uh, set up? interface specific tests or do you try to weave it into uh, the beta test and pull out interface design issues from that? Um, I mean, certainly we've never done interface specific testing but some of the bigger places who have the crazy amount of resources necessary to do that do. Um, I mean the tricky bit is, is it's kind of like how easy is it is to like I know some people do like wireframe rock walkthroughs and stuff but that's there's so much missing there I mean like for like an internal walkthrough thing it seems fine but to actually be like hey stranger come and look at these fake PowerPoint slides or something doesn't seem like it would have a lot of value just because there's so much other stuff there that can either make or break your interface um, yeah I don't know how easy it is to isolate those things really we do. Um extensive design uh, on paper. We, we put off writing code as long as possible. Um, code's expensive and it, and it can take you down the wrong direction very easily. I'm looking for an app here um, to tell you about. But there are tools that are available to mock up uh, interfaces on iPhone, iPad. Uh, use them. They, they can really teach you a lot. Uh, we use one called um, uh, App Taster was the, was the version of it that I used. The, the uh, um, App Cooker is the version that the developers used, and you could create an app, and you know I had Taster, and I could go through the the user interface of our game months and months and months before it was released. So there are plenty of tools out there. Um, it does. It's not a magic wand, um, and you know you still have to you know evolve uh, during development. But I think you can save yourself a lot of grief by doing uh, wireframing and using some of the tools that are out there. Hi. Uh, my question is a little off topic, but I think I can bring it back around. Um, any, like, Rise of Nations is an awesome game, um, but I really like Rise of Legends. So any, uh, is there a chance that that's coming out? But the, to, tie it, to tie it in, to tie it in, um, 
Is there a difference between designing a UI for something that's dealing with real world uh, things that we know about and dealing with a fantasy world because you're not dealing with numbers that people know as far as you know, statistics and, and attack power and different things like that? Lead off. It's, yeah, I mean, there is a difference because the big difference is uh, player expectations, right? Players have very few expectations of what's going to happen in, in, in fairyland between the elves and the dwarves. Um, so you don't have so you can make the art as colorful as you want. You can make things sparkle. Um, you don't want to make the Waffen SS sparkle. Uh, there's, there, there are things you can't do. This is a constant problem in, in, in tabletop war game design uh, because there's this desire to always make the Waffen SS like really black with silver on it, and it's a constant refrain all the way through, which is kind of historically accurate, but it also makes the Waffen SS look really, really cool. And this is actually a problem uh, in some wargaming communities where the coolest-looking unit is, are the most evil unit in the world. Uh, and games, and there, there's a, there is what we, call, what we call an education school, the hidden curriculum. Games teach you things hmm. without them intending to teach you things. Uh, but you can get away with, I mean, the, the orcs will always be like dirt brown or whatever because they're the real fantasy Nazis. In fantasy, in, uh, in fantasy lands, you can get away with, because player expectations are different, because you don't have to have the different types of French infantry, because you're making a Napoleonic war game, my God, you got to have the guards and the hussars and the zouaves in different uniforms or pandemonium. Um, there's, there are expectations. And I think that's really one of the ways the UI is different. I, I think, too, in some ways, I think it complicates the task because if you're creating a fantasy world, you've got you're also you're, or if you're working in a fantasy world, you're dealing you're tackling two things now. Uh, your UI needs to reinforce the job you did of world building, yeah. uh, which is a completely new uh, and stickier problem in many ways because. You know, one thing you can get away with really easily in a World War II game is, like, you know what a tank does. You know what a mechanized infantry regiment does. You put a guy next to a half-track, and people have it figured out roughly what this thing's going to do. But what does, an el- what does an elf with a delicately crafted longbow do? And I say, well, it's clearly an archer, but they're elves. They're all archers, right? Like, like your fantasy tech starts to create a problem, and then it's like, how do you communicate clearly uh, purpose? How do you clearly create, you know, communicate information without necessarily falling back on basically just like, like retheming uh, the space bucks problem? Really, like the economy and everything is just. It could just as easily be tanks. It could just as easily be money, and it could just as easily be oil. But we're in a fantasy world, so we're gonna, you know, give you some made up. BS name for it, and then people are going to complain. It'll be a clearly understood world, it'll be a clearly understood game, but then people are going to complain. It doesn't feel, well, I'm going to complain, and I'm, probably, I'm, I'm the asshole reviewing the game, probably, and I'm going to be the one who's like, yeah, it's all clear, it's all easy to understand, but I don't feel it really reinforced the fiction. And this is really the thing with, we have to remember that games aren't just UI is where the player meets the rules. Um, and so expectations cut both ways. I mean, they can cut for you or against you. Uh, but you, you're right. You absolutely have the world-building problem. Um, as for Rise of Legends, I don't know if it's coming out on sale. I really liked it, too. I think it was... It wasn't a, part of the leak. It wasn't part of the leak. Uh, Rise of Nations Gold was part of the leak, and I kind of celebrated for an hour and then posted on Twitter and then danced some more. 
I think we have one more question. Uh, hi, I'm a solo independent developer of Seatless Studios. And I was asking, it maybe outside the scope of this topic, it's more of a legal question, but when choosing fonts and those types of things, how do I ensure that the font I'm using is actually legal to use in a game or a board game? Yeah. Like if you take a true type font and make it into a bitmap, say, oh, well, here's my bitmap atlas, you know, here's my font atlas using that bitmap, how do I know that that's actually legal to use in my game versus something else? You create it. Yeah, um, <laughs> or you buy it. There's there's a lot of gray areas in this in this field, as you know. Uh, sometimes it's hard to determine, and even with the open source fonts, some of them, if you read their restrictions, are actually you can use it as long as it's for college and not for a commercial and so forth. It's very difficult. We actually just license it. Fonts are not expensive, really, um, and it's a I. I, I for, for me and my team, we like to be completely above board on all these kind of issues, so we license stuff, and it's not expensive, um, and it's, I think it's worth the time to do it, because um, you never, otherwise it's hanging over your head and kind of worrying you, like, am I, am I really doing the right thing, Is it my, am I legal or am I ethical, so I think just be above board. I want to go back to the previous question for just a minute, if I could. I think it's one of the most important of the, of the, of the uh, evening. And this is a question of art direction. And I'm, I went to art school. I actually have a degree in fine art from Pratt Institute. I spent my entire career in software development. But art direction is, is a huge topic. It's, it could be an entire evening here. But there is no right and wrong about how you, how you display information. A good art director can make many things work. If you look at our Battle of the Bulge game, the art direction there is incredibly subtle. It, it looks like winter, and it has abstract units. If you could page back to that I, I, I'll, I'll make more sense if I can page back I don't have the I have the uh, no, controller but the units are, getting, are, are just squares I'm getting a red but, ring but the <laughs> yeah the units are just squares but the map is actually looks realistic and you can zoom in and see houses and things like that but that's completely the wrong scale you know but it's com nobody has ever questioned it because it looks like the battle of the bulge and it looks like roads and bridges and it's kind of what you expect but the, that map at that scale wouldn't fill one space on the, on the board if it was done in the proper scale. So that's an art director. That's what an art director can do. Create this, this environment that you believe and trust, and you don't even question. But in fact, if you really know, it's like, wait a minute, I can see individual houses, but this is showing 400 square miles of land here. This is, you know, this is crazy. Um, so I, I think every, every moment you can spend looking at art direction and whatever publications you can see is worth the time. It's an amazing area of game, game user interface um, design. And uh, that does it for our talk tonight. Uh, thank you very much for being an awesome audience. Thank you. Uh, that does it for you, Zed. Good night.